Thank you for that song, and thank you, Mose, for that message. I must say, I, as I think of what the Lord Jesus and all he's done for me, um, standing up and facing his critics day by day is not one that readily came to my mind. I will never forget that, I believe. That was, that was good to see that insight in the life of the Lord Jesus. And then the application to that insight is, is that we want to be like our Lord Jesus, which means we also face our critics like he does with grace, with firmness, with love, and uh, so on. In fact, I thought for a while you were going to read my text this morning. <laughs> so thank you very much. It's good to see all of you here. It is actually um, much smaller, but not quite as small as I thought it might be. So um, since it's a little larger than I thought it might be, I'm going to have to um, expand my message a little. No, it makes no difference how many. <laughs> So we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. I think before we go, why don't we just stand for a word of prayer and ask God to bless us and be with us in this part of the service. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again this morning. We think of the bright morning. We think of the morning you have made for us and we think of the future and the plans you have for us, which are glorious beyond description. And even though now, Lord, for a time, we are faced with many difficulties and trials and we have responsibilities here that sometimes take us down, Lord, we are sure and confident that you have great things for us. We just pray now, Lord, for this part of the service, that you would be with us and instruct us and teach us out of your word what you want. I pray, Lord, you would speak to each one of us individually, Lord, not to my brother and not to my sister, but to me, O Lord. Pray, Lord, you would do that for each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Okay, for a text this morning, I would like you to turn to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, there is actually a unique passage. I, uh, I would dare say there is actually none other like it in Scripture, starting at verse 1 there, and I'd like to read it. And if we go from there... And Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And here's where I thought maybe um, Moses would talk about this, because this is such a, such a uh, classic example of the critics coming to the Lord Jesus. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? 
This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and a woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Like I said, this is a unique passage in Scripture. There is none other passage in all of Scripture that I am aware of that speaks and has this kind of result. It's a unique insight into the life of our Lord while he was on the earth. Now, I am aware that, and maybe you are too, that there are some translators that say that this passage actually does not belong in Scripture. It was added later. But they say, well, since it is so much like the spirit of Jesus, they still include it, even though everything else that they don't, that is, uh, is deleted in some other, um, text that they use for translation, they delete those verses. But here's one they always include, because it's just like the spirit of Jesus. It's such a powerful and potent, um, message with it. And here we see Jesus, and he's embroiled in conflict with the scribes and Pharisees. But in this time, he had a different outcome than normal. What started as a direct confrontation and a challenge against the Lord Jesus ended up with the conflict just melting away. Why? What happened in such a hostile environment that would diffuse that these, these, these scribes and Pharisees, they were after blood. Let's just face it. They were like a, a hound after a fox. They were on the trail. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they wanted. They just had to get the right time. And here... They had this right time. They're going to get him. And yet they didn't. Jesus, uh, and I don't know, um, you talked about conflict this morning. I wonder if we could learn something about conflict. I am one that sometimes when conflict comes my way, it grabs me. And wraps me around it. And I get sucked into it. In a way that I shouldn't. At times. There are times the Lord has taught me a lot of things. There are times I see it coming. And I back up. There's a right time for that. Well here is the Lord Jesus. They come right up to him. Instead of giving them an answer. He just writes on the ground. The only time we have. The only example we have of Jesus writing. 
But since they're after blood, they keep on after him. They're not going to let him go. They're not. This this is this is our this is our um, um, star witness, so to speak. This is this is how we're going to get him. And they keep pressing him. And so finally he gets up and he says one statement and ignores them and goes again and writes. So what, what's going on here? What forces are in play here that causes this response? And maybe you have an answer. What, what, what happened? What, why did this happen? Maybe it's more complex. But anybody have an answer? Anybody have a thought? Okay, we'll just go on. They were convicted by their conscience. I'd like to talk about the conscience this morning. First, they were as a as a hound after a fox. They were on a trail. Jesus gave him a word and then he wrote on the ground. Uh, we don't know what he wrote. I know there's a lot of ideas what he might have wrote. I think I know. No, I don't know if I know. But let me let me give you an idea. In Hosea chapter 4 verse 14, you don't have to turn there, but I'll I'll read it to you. See, this is God talking through the prophet. He says, I won't punish your daughters when they act like whores or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery because the men are themselves going off with whores and are sacrificing with prostitutes. And, and that is, and, and, and just imagine maybe Jesus was writing down that scripture on the ground and it was true and it got them. We don't know. We just know that the combination of writing and that focused response emptied out the courtroom. It's, they were convicted. They were rebuked. They were reproved by their own conscience. They went out one by one. It was not like a group consensus. You know, we better get out of here. It's not, not like that. It was their conscience that did it. Now, their conscience took sides against them and let them know in no uncertain terms that you are wrong and you have no case here and you better just leave. So what is this thing that the Bible calls the conscience? Uh, the conscience simply in Greek means uh, to... Um, well, the one word is science. It's to know. And con, it means to know with or to know beside. And it's an interesting word. But it's a faculty which you have. It's yours. And yet it's distinctly separate from you. It's Maybe some of you could describe it better than I can. But let's, let's just touch it out a little bit further. Conscience is one of the two parts of a human nature that makes us human, that makes us different from the animals. Uh, first is consciousness, and then there is conscience. First, we'll exp- 
examine consciousness. Consciousness is part of our self-awareness. You're aware you're alive. You're aware you exist. But it goes beyond that. If someone, for first of all, like you're aware you exist, if you're unconscious, you're not aware of anything. But it's beyond that. Consciousness, we're describing a part of the image of God in you. It's aware that you are an American. You, uh, let me say, you are a person. You live in America. Are you an American? Okay, that's debatable. You live in America. You like pizza and music. You can run fast. You don't like broccoli. Um, you are, you consider yourself pretty or whatever you want to put. You are actually, when, when you make, when people make those kinds of judgments, okay, they are actually called, they are, uh, they are conscious of themselves. A little baby is not conscious of themselves, real little. But at a certain age, they eventually become conscious. And I know I'm conscious of myself. When I leave the pulpit after I'm done with the message and I walk down, if I have to walk pretty far, I am very self-conscious. Everybody's looking at me and, and I'm nervous. I'm self-conscious. That's one of the areas that, that it affects me. But that is part of our self-awareness. Animals do not, um, do not have that. One of Jared's bugs, for example, does not, like he has a ladybug, say, I'm glad I'm a ladybug and not a stink bug. They don't say that. They're not aware that they're a ladybug. They're just a bug. Uh, that ladybug doesn't say, not only can I fly, but I'm also pretty. It doesn't think, I'm glad I am the state bug of Pennsylvania. They don't say, she doesn't say, I hope I live to be a hundred days old. I don't know how long ladybugs live. But they're not conscious of those things. But we as humans are created in the image of God and we're conscious of that. That's part of our consciousness. The other part of our consciousness, or rather being made in the image of God, is called our conscience. Now, our conscience is different than our consciousness. It's, it's not your self-awareness. It is your awareness of your moral condition. It's the idea of your, it's the self-awareness of right and wrong. Conscience always operates in the rightness and the wrongness of something. It doesn't operate in the wisdom of something. It doesn't operate in the uh, reasonableness of something. Uh, take, for instance, I, um, I can be on, on the job and I can get off the freeway and I can get off at the exit and I can take a left turn where I should take a right turn. And conscience doesn't bother me. I can sing a song and I can sharp a note and my conscience doesn't bother me. I can figure a math problem and conscience doesn't bother me unless I'm fudging it on my tax return. And all of a sudden, conscience comes up. Now here is a math problem that consciousness speaks to because 
Now you enter in the realm of right and wrong. Conscious reacts when one's actions and thoughts and words conform to or are contrary to your personally perceived standard of right and wrong. That's our conscience. We have been given a moral compass. You know what a compass does? Points to the north. If you're out in the middle of the sea and you have no compass and you cannot see the stars, you are lost. You don't know which way. You know which way is up and which way is down, but you don't know which way you're going. Well, we have been given a moral compass, an internal alarm system that keeps track of anything that might intrude, that might come in that's wrong. Um, I guess there are probably not too many here that go to SIL. I mean, yes, Cedars of Lebanon. In the big room there, in the corner, there's a little gizmo up there, little sensor up there that has a light on it, and it's an alarm. I think it's infrared light alarm, I think, that before you go in that building, you must disarm the alarm, or if you go in, that alarm would sense your movement and would send an alarm. And that detector is always sending something out. I know that even when the alarm is set off, you can tell if the detector is going off because there's a little light up there. And I know, I remember um, some of the young boys, like they like to take things as far as they can, you know. They would move real slowly and see how far they could get across the room without that thing detecting them. Because if you went slow enough, it didn't detect you. But if you walked across the room, the light would come on. Oh, yeah, you're, you're detected. It's a motion detector. And when something is wrong, when something is, uh, disrupts those rays, the alarm goes off. It's meant for that reason. Well, that's what a conscience is. It's always monitoring. See, that alarm is always monitoring. Even when nothing is happening, that alarm is going. That, that uh, sensor, I should have said a sensor. The sensor is always going, always checking, always watching. And when something happens, there go the alarm. That's how our conscience is. It's either, it's always monitoring our decisions, our motives, our condition. When someone says, I cannot do that with a clear conscience, what they are saying is, I cannot do that and not have that alarm go off. I cannot do that and remain guiltless. You understand what I'm saying? And our conscience, it's interesting, we talked about it in family devotions, it's a part of us and yet it's distinct from us. And it, that's, that's actually from scripture. Paul says in, um, in Romans 9, when I don't turn there, he says, I, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing witness. It's like, it's like your conscience, it's a part of you. But it's, it's, it's like a, let's say it this way, maybe it's like a satellite, like the moon going around the earth. The, the, the moon belongs to the earth, but the moon is not part of the earth. But the, the earth 
affects the moon because it keeps it in orbit. The moon affects the earth, the tides and all those things, and gives light and so on. So there's, there's, a, there's an influence, but they're severed. And it seems almost like the conscience is like that. It's a part of you, and yet it's a distinct part of you. It's a separate part of you. You can influence it, but you can't control it. So what happens when you do something your conscience disagrees with? Well, the alarm goes off. When you violate your conscience, it condemns you. It triggers feelings of guilt, fear, shame, regret, consternation, and it has a whole, whole, uh, you can have a whole list of things that the conscience does, but it, 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 that guilt brings with it a whole slew of emotional issues. Conversely, when you follow your conscience, it commends you and it brings you joy and serenity and self-respect and well-meaning and gladness. And this is for everyone. The very familiar verse there in Romans chapter 2, and I'll read those two verses there in 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, These, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Everybody, Gentiles and Jews, everybody has a conscience that is an internal moral compass. It's not always correctly instructed. We can talk about that a little bit later. But there is always going to be an evaluation, a self-evaluation of right and wrong. The Bible speaks about a clear conscience, a pure conscience, a good conscience, a defiled conscience, a seared conscience, a weak conscience, an evil conscience, and a conscience void of offense. So as you sit here this morning, which Bible definition of conscience fits you? In what state of being is your conscience? Is a good conscience worth having? If your conscience is bothering you, why not get rid of it? There was a number of years ago when I was um, hauling limestone, I would get limestone out in York. And there was a, I would often be out there in the early hours of the morning, one, two, three, four in the morning. And there was this one wild guy on a night shift that I would interact with, wait until the trucks load, you could talk with him, and we talked. And I got to know his heart pretty, pretty, I got to know him pretty well. One, one morning, I got in later, I got in at 7 o'clock, and I saw this wild-looking guy that I would never talk to leaving, leaving the quarry. And here it was the guy I was talking to. He was dressed in his street clothes. He looked, I wasn't used to talking to people like that. But when I was talking with him, you get to know him. Well, he said, 
that he has a girlfriend. And he said his girlfriend, she keeps him straight. He needs her. He needs her to keep him straight. And I, I said, you know what people do with, if she's your conscience, you know what people do with their conscience? That they fight their conscience. You know what you're going to do with your girlfriend? You're going to fight her. So, is a good conscience, if your conscience is bothering you, why not try to get rid of it or silence it? Well, would you like to be without a compass out in the sea? Let's turn, and you can turn there, turn to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, and starting at verse 13, talking about, do you want, should you have a good conscience? Why not just get rid of or just ignore your conscience? There is a reason why not. Here is, Paul is defending himself, and we'll start reading at verse 13 to get a little bit of the context. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all that are written, all things which are written in the law and the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Why does Paul exercise himself to have a conscience void of offense? Why does he go to the bother of listening to his conscience and making sure, making sure it's clear? making sure there's nothing that's speaking to him, making sure that alarm is silent. Why is he doing that? And he does it before God, and he does it before people. Why does he do that? Well, he said there will be a resurrection, both there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. He said because there's a future resurrection, because there will be a future judgment, I will keep my conscience clear every which way. Now, I know that we would say we have higher motives than that. We, we keep our conscience clear because we love Jesus. <laughs> we keep our conscience clear because he first loved us, his spirit is living us, and all, and all that. Okay, and I, I grant that. But here, Paul said, I keep my conscience clear. We know there's a resurrection, and... Here, and, and actually, if you read it in, I'm not sure which translation, but uh, in verse 16, he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. So it explains it and brings it out in clarity. So, is having a clear conscience important? Well, if we believe that there is a future coming where everything will be set straight, I think having a clear conscience is important. But, like Adam and Eve, we, every one of us, face the devastation of a violated conscience. 
and the guilt and the fear and the shame that accompanies it. And like Adam and Eve, we often respond by covering up what we did. That's the normal response for a violated conscience. Cover up. Keep it hidden. Don't let anybody know. I remember as a child, I, I got a chair. I don't know if you children know what I'm talking about. I got a chair. I got up on the countertop and I went up to the way top shelf, opened the cabinet, opened up to the top shelf because one time I remember my mom hid some candy up there. And so one time when no one was in the house, that I made sure nobody's in the house, got a chair, got up on the countertop, and went and reached up there. Well, the only thing I remember I found was a heat lamp that we used every spring to keep our chicks warm. And you know what happened. As I'm going in there, things smashes. Now what do I do? Well, I could very carefully and very clearly clear my conscience by confessing it to my parents. I could have done that. But you know what I did? I very carefully and very um, carefully swept up every piece of glass. And I threw that glass somewhere where I knew nobody would find it. That's what I did. Now, what, what happened? I did what Adam and Eve did. I hid it. I covered up. But I did not have a clear conscience. I knew I had done wrong. And you know what else? I also knew that they would eventually look for that bulb. <laughs> next spring, come next spring, there was a judgment. I, did, I, I knew it was coming. And I actually remember that when they were looking for the bulb, I actually did confess. I actually told them, and, and my mom said, didn't your conscience bother you? Well, yeah, it did. Well, that's what Adam did. He, he did that. And the first thing he did was hide. He hid. The next thing that happened was when you ha- don't have a clear conscience, when you violate things, especially between people, but it's also between God, is it's, you have difficult and distant relationships with those people or with God. We often look at Adam and, you know, when Adam sinned, God had to distance himself from Adam because of Adam's sin. But, you know, before God did that, you know what happened? Adam pulled away from God very, very clearly. Adam did not want to be close to God. His conscience, that fear, uh, the dread. So, the first thing you do when you violate your conscience is you try to hide it. And then it also causes difficulty in relationship. It causes strain. It causes distance. You don't want anyone too close to you. Like Adam, we clam up or try to avoid those we have wronged or those who would reprove us if they knew. It built on top of keeping it hidden is that we have to keep it distant. And then comes blame shifting. Adam couldn't hide. Finally, God confronted Adam. And I don't know, of course, 
what could have Adam done at the time. I don't know what he could have done for sure, but I know what he did do. He said, I know I did it, but it's not my fault. I did it, but it's not my fault. John MacArthur explains it better than I can, so I'm going to read a quote from him. He said, multitudes today respond to their conscience by attempting to suppress it, overrule it, or silence it. They conclude that the real blame for their wrong behavior lies in some childhood trauma, the way their parents raised them, societal pressures, or some other causes beyond their control. Sometimes people convince themselves that their sin is a clinical problem, not a moral one, and therefore define their drunkenness, their sexual perversion, their immorality, or other vices as diseases or conditions. Blame shifting, not taking responsibility for the wrong you have done. It's someone else's fault. Years ago, I delivered to a store, and um, this was in a high-crime area, and the store was had a fence around it. You had to go through a gate. As you went in the store, near the cash register, in the, in the opening to go into the store, there was a big sign up above the entrance. It said, shoplifting is a sickness. And below it said, Don't get sick here. Now, shoplifting, we know shoplifting is a sin. But there are some people who get addicted to shoplifting. So if they're addicted to something, now it becomes a condition or a sickness. That's that's the whole thought. So he was using some dry humor to try to discourage shoplifting. Our culture has declared war on guilt. This is John MacArthur. The very concept is considered medieval, obsolete, and unproductive. People who trouble themselves with feelings of personal guilt are usually referred to therapists whose task it is to boost their self-image. No one, after all, is supposed to feel guilty. Guilt is not conductive or conducive to dignity and self-esteem. Society encourages sin, but it will not tolerate the guilt sin produces. Even if, even if we are successful in somehow mitigating the guilt, when you've done wrong, like, for instance, I don't know if I could, hadn't thought of this, but like I, I, um, that glass bulb that I broke, I would have somehow devised a way that it wasn't my fault. I don't, right now I can't think how I would have do that. But let's suppose I devised a way, it wasn't my fault. But I still would have that dread. They're still going to look for that bulb. Somehow, the chickens will have to still have come home to roost. There will still be a nagging sense of dread and impending judgment if we do wrong. Like Joseph's brothers is such a clear example. They successfully hid the tragic sin that they did to Joseph. 
But they couldn't shake something. They couldn't shake the sense of guilt and that someday we're going to have to pay for this. Justice is coming. And I'll read there in Genesis. When, uh, when they came down to Egypt, stood before their brother. They didn't know it was Joseph. And then Joseph spoke harshly to them, told them they were spies, and uh, put them in prison for a time. And, and um, then they talked among themselves, and Joseph could understand them, although they didn't know it. But they said to one another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and he, we would not hear him. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. In other words, his blood is now, is now coming back to haunt us. <clears throat> and I think it's right to ask the question here. Is there, could there be anyone here in that condition? No, you did not sell your brother into slavery. But you sold yourself into slavery. The slavery of a defiled conscience. A cloudy conscience. Because when you did or do what your conscience tells you is wrong, you hide it. You stay distant enough from others so that no one will find it out. And if something slips out, then it's not your fault. You are choosing not only to violate your conscience, but you are also choosing to keep it that way. Why? Why would someone, why would anyone continue to choose to have that guilt and that fear and that dread stay in their life? I know what it's like. I did it for years. I know the Lord began to speak to me when I was I, clearly at 12 years old. I was 24 before the Lord cleansed my conscience. Twelve, half my life there of a guilty, cloudy, dread in my spirit, knowing I was not right with God, knowing I was going to face judgment, and yet going on in that way. And the thing about it is, Nobody knew it. Nobody knew what was going on in my heart. People thought I was a good person. They, they, I could. So, but there it was. Why do that? Especially when you obey, when you follow your conscience, when you don't violate it, it brings you joy and serenity and a sense of well-being and a sense that things are right. Why didn't Joseph's brothers when they did this horrible thing, why didn't they go home and tell their father and, and just let it out? Why didn't they do that? Twenty years of this dread. Why didn't I tell my mom about the broken bulb, the first opportunity I had? Why not operate as David did? And you can pass, you can turn to here. Here's a beautiful example of someone with a Sensitive conscience. Um, you don't have to turn there, you don't want to, but I'll read it in 1 Samuel 24. 
starting at verse 1, here we have to come to the passage again where Saul was chasing David unjustly. And it came to pass when Saul was returned from the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engendai. I should get you to tell these pronunciations. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it seems good to thee. So then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, because he had cut off David's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Now, the Old Testament, I didn't talk about it at all, about conscience. The Old Testament doesn't have the word conscience. It doesn't have the word conscience in it at all, from one end to the other. But it has the concept very clearly, and here it is. His heart smote him. That was his conscience speaking to him. And and David had a tender, sensitive conscience. And when that conscience smote him, he said immediately to his men, no more. We're not going to take care of him. I've done wrong. And when Saul went out of the cave, he acknowledged his wrong to Saul. He had, he had a conscience. That conscience in David evaluated what he did and reproved him. And David responded. And he had a good, clear conscience. What a great way to start ruling a kingdom with a clear conscience. What a great way to lead a home with a clear conscience. What a great way to go to ministry or whatever you do with a clear conscience. Now, David would have only done that all his life. He could have avoided the episode with Bathsheba. But instead of listening to his conscience, when it must have been smiting him, what did he do? He hid it. And, and hiding it got more things wrong. Murder and, and all the things that you know, you know what went with it. It finally took the prophet Nathan to come and stick his finger in his face and said, you are the man. And David, God bless him, did not shift the blame. He didn't do that. At least he didn't do that. He was a sensitive enough man that he did not shift blame. He said, yes, I did it. And you can hear his heart cry there in Psalms 51. He was fully forgiven, but he's, because of his behavior, he never recovered, never fully recovered to his former glory. I'm going to read a few verses in Luke 12. He covered it. Nathan uncovered it. We can cover it too. But here in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, Jesus says, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Descriptive, poetic metaphors given here. Whatever your conscience is telling you is wrong and you're hiding it, it's going to be displayed sometime. It's not going to stay hidden. I remember as a young Christian, we were, I was encouraged to clear my conscience. As a young Christian, God had done a work in my heart. And we'll talk a little bit more about how we can clear our conscience before God. But God had done a work in my heart. My conscience was cleansed before God. But there was a lot of things I had done that I had never told anybody. And we were encouraged to tell somebody, confess everything to somebody. And I remember that time I dumped it to somebody. Everything, the humiliation, the shame of revealing some of those things I had done, the unmentionables, the horrible, shocking things that would shock ears that I've done that I never told anybody. But the desire to clear my heart was stronger than the humiliation and the shame that that brought. And then going to individuals personally and telling them what I had done wrong and things of that nature, clearing my conscience before man. And I wish I could say that for the rest of my life I've done that, but I haven't. I've had to do it again and again and again. The conscience, it's keeping and walking like Apostle Paul has a testimony that I do not have. That I have always kept a clear conscience. I have not always kept a clear conscience. I don't know. Maybe there's one of you that can say that here. I don't know. But I cannot say that. But the joy of receiving from the Lord Jesus Christ a cleansed, clear, clean conscience. Why? Because I know that my sins went with the Lord Jesus Christ on the tree, on the cross, and that, that there will come a time of judgment, but my sins will not be there. The joy of that clear conscience, um, they will never come back. There will never be anybody sticking a bony face in my finger and say, you did that, because they're gone. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near. Remember how a clear conscience, a clear conscience you can, uh, with an unclear conscience, you have a distant relationship. With a clear conscience, you draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. 
and our bodies washed with pure water. So anyhow, I haven't, I have, I have, since that initial cleansing of my conscience, I have had to have people stick their bony finger in my face and say, you are the man. And I praise God for that. We need that. A clear conscience is worth having. A few more thoughts on conscience. There is a saying, especially from more liberal or humanistic circles, follow your conscience. That's a slogan. This concept springs from the idea that there is some innate goodness inside of each person. There's some goodness inside there. And if you just listen to yourself, if you just listen to yourself, you will discover that goodness and then you follow that goodness. That's the concept. Follow your conscience. Now, the Bible very clearly tells us to obey our conscience. Don't violate it. Don't go against it. But recognize that it is not infallible. Our conscience needs to be informed and instructed. Our conscience needs to be sensitive. It needs to be guided. And, and so I have a few points on how to do that. Because uh, our conscience can become dull. Our conscience can become insensitive. Sometimes through sin, not listening to it. Sometimes just not being in the right environment. And we're going to talk about that right now. So our conscience must be informed and instructed and continually be kept sensitive. And that is what makes Bible reading with an open heart to know what God says completely essential. Reading the Bible with an open and a searching heart. It's the Lord we follow. We don't follow our conscience. We follow the Lord and we find the Lord in the Word. And so we need to Get into the word and stay there and in prayer. Another way to be have your conscience informed and sensitized is to be under the preaching of the word. I'm not a preacher. I'm only a teacher. Be under the preaching of the word where someone gets up and he has spent time in study and in prayer and he has taken a sharp word from the word of God and he gives it, and it goes into your heart and becomes, it connects with your conscience and your conscience becomes sensitized and instructed. Staying under the preaching of the word is essential for a conscience and keeping it instructed and informed and clear. Then the other is the fellowship of the saints. Interacting with one another. How many times that has happened to me already, where you interact with someone and someone else goes through this experience and you have questions and you discuss it and, and your conscience, like, like suppose there's a something, you have a question about something and, 
or you're, you're doubtful about something. Maybe your conscience is saying, is, is, your conscience is not clear in this area. You're not sure you should be doing it or no, that, 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 that the right way. <laughs> but your conscience is speaking against it, but you're not sure if it's wrong. Or you are doing something and your conscience isn't bothering you. And you talk with someone else and they say, oh no, that's, that's, this is what God's word says. So you have fellowship, we have iron sharpening iron. And you have, um, those, the cleansing effects of open and clear and relationship with other believers. Now, when you have lighthearted conversations with other people, when you have joking conversations with other people, that's not the kind of conversation that's going to speak to your conscience. I'm not talking about that kind. Sometimes, not that those are always wrong, I understand that, but sometimes those are just simply cover-ups for a burdened or a unclear conscience. But heart-to-heart talks, deep down where you're feeling, where you share with other believers, maybe only a few, where you can get deep down and you can hear others' issues in a safe environment. If this is done in a healthy way, the effects is both accountability and encouragement. See, our conscience can become or tend to become dull after a time, and fellowship with believers is one way to keep it sharp and active. A working conscience is one that's free from the burden of unchecked sin and unaddressed guilt. It's not weighed down by impurity or dulled by neglect. In one word, it's clear. A clear conscience. Spurgeon says this of the conscience. He says, he was a fool who killed the watchdog when he warned the owner of thieves coming. If conscience upbraids you, feel its upbraiding and heed its rebuke. It is your best friend. Spurgeon is his, his way with words. If the dog man's best friend uses the dog as an example, then he says your conscience is your best friend, not your dog. It is a blessed thing to have a conscience who will shiver when the very ghost of sin goes by. A conscience that is not like our great steamships that do not yield to every wave, but like a cork on the water. It goes up and down with every ripple, sensitive in a moment to the very approach of sin. May God, the Holy Spirit, make us so, he says. What a difference it would have been for those scribes and Pharisees when their conscience convicted them if they would have responded correctly to that conviction. Now, I believe some of them responded later on. There's a lot that responded to the Lord Jesus. But just imagine the difference those that respond and they become friends of the Lord Jesus 
and he becomes his disciples. They share in his kingdom. Those who do not respond, they are instrumental in killing the Lord Jesus. They are actually working against the very God of heaven, the very creator. That's the difference between those that responded to their conscience and those that did not. It is actually the difference between eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Why don't we just, can we kneel for prayer? Let's kneel for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful to you. The many gifts that you have given to us, you have given us the gift of conscience. Lord, I pray as we recognize that gift, but like every other gift, Lord, we can abuse and neglect that gift. And I pray for each one of us, not only for those who are unsaved, but all of us together that we would recognize the, the place that conscience has in our lives. Respond to the voice, to inform it, let it instruct us, and by all means, keep it clear. I pray, Lord, you be with each one of us, Lord. It's not my sister, it's not my brother, but it's you that you are speaking to. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.